Well, please turn with me now to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we uh, come to the end of our studies in uh, 2 Timothy this morning. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll pick up at verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Take a kiss I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he has strongly opposed our message. On my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Great Prissa and Aquila, in the household of Onesiphorus, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit as we come to study your Word. We are ever dependent upon His ministry to us, and so we pray that He who inspired Paul as he wrote these words would now come and be our instructor as we study them. Amen. How do you evaluate success in ministry? It's a question that is being constantly asked by ministers and by elders and, I think, even by congregations. How do you know that your ministry is successful, that it has faithfully executed the mission that God has given to it? In our culture, it is a question that is most often answered numerically. We're just so used to the language of the marketplace and the evaluation of organizations by the size of their market share that it is almost instinctive to answer that question in terms of numbers. We see it, don't we, in so much of the pragmatism that characterizes Western evangelicalism. If questions are raised about the methods that they are employing or the programs that they are rolling out or, or the message that they are preaching, the answer so often comes back as some form of, but look at how many people are coming. 
Look at how God is blessing us. Look at how many people we are engaging for the gospel. Of course, it's not just a problem out there in the world of broad evangelicalism. Even in here, in the world of conservative, confessional, reformed Christians, there is often an unhealthy focus on numbers. In presbytery, when men ask me, how is your church doing, there is a reflex in me to answer that question in terms of numbers. How is your church doing? Well, this is how many people came this last Sunday. How is your church doing? Well, this is how many new members we've added to the rolls over the last year. And it's a reflex because most of the time that is actually what is being asked. Not so much how is your church doing, but tell me, what kind of numbers are you getting? And often that question is asked because they want to know how your numbers stack up against their numbers. Maybe sometimes it's cynical, but I think most of the time it's just because it's in the culture. It just runs in the water. Success to our 21st century minds can be presented at a graph at the annual meeting. And of course, it runs through the popular discourse that surrounds us. We hear that phrase ringing so often just now, the right side of history. Well, future generations judge you to be on the right side of history, and the right side of history, of course, is deemed as the one that is most popular, the one that has the greatest momentum. And so anything that is advocated that runs counter to the popular narrative is written off as even unworthy to be heard. If it is popular, then it must be right. Success equals numbers is just floating in the air that we breathe. But as Paul brings his letter to Timothy to a close now, he ends it by giving Timothy uh, another paradigm by which to assess assess the success or otherwise of his ministry. And it is a paradigm that is fixed not on the opinion of other people, but that is fixed rather on the opinion of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a clear poignancy to what Paul writes to Timothy here, right at the end of this letter. There is a melancholy that comes through these final instructions in verses 9 through 21. It's not unusual, of course, for Paul to end his letters with a section of personal connection like he does here. If you just quickly flick through Paul's letters in your New Testament, you'll almost always find a closing section in which he addresses by name certain people, sometimes sending greetings from those people who are working with him, sometimes sending greetings to other people who are beloved friends currently far away from him. Right? It is important. It's one of those passages that we might be tempted just to skim through as we, as we read it, this list of names that don't necessarily always mean a lot to us, but it's important. It's important, one, because it shows us the kind of ministry that the Apostle Paul pursued, that for as much as he was a type A pioneer, church-planting evangelist, 
he still understood the vital importance of doing ministry in connection with other people. Right? For all of his pioneering spirit, Paul was never a lone ranger. He always did ministry intentionally in partnership with others. But these final words, for all of their similarities with the rest of Paul's letters, these words, I don't think it takes long to realize, are, are noticeably different. Like we see it even in just how our Bible editors have subtitled it, don't we? And often these little closing sections will be titled something like Final Greetings. But here, at least in the ESV, it's given the kind of colder title of Final Instructions. And we understand why when we read through it. What we find here is not so much Paul's delighting in his partners in ministry, sending greetings from them, uh, sending greetings to them, what we find here instead is, is a litany of heartbreak. As Paul goes through these names, almost all of them speak of the sorrow that Paul is enduring as he sits imprisoned in, in Rome. It starts, of course, with Demas, notorious Demas. Demas, who has abandoned Paul because he says he is fallen in love with the present world. That's sad enough, just reading it. But when we remember that Demas is named in Colossians 4.14 as one of Paul's closest associates, being, being named, being mentioned almost in the same breath as Luke, the beloved physician, Luke, who stuck so close to Paul that he was able to write that play-by-play -play account of Paul's first three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Luke, who is still now, Paul says, with him, is he imprisoned in Rome, the last man standing, it seems, with Paul in Rome. Demas, who once was right there, shoulder to shoulder with Luke, as one of Paul's closest associates. Some have tried to rehabilitate Demas and interpret this as if Demas has just found Paul's ministry to be uh, too rigorous for him. And so, the idea being that Demas hasn't walked away from the faith, he's just decided to part ways with Paul and go on and do Christian ministry independently or maybe in partnership with somebody else. But the sadness of this verse and that telling phrase here that the reason for Demas' desertion was that he was in love with the present world, which should spark in our minds James' statement in James 4.4, 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I think we realize that the traditional understanding of De Demas is the right one. Here's Demas, once part of Paul's close circle, but now... He's become apostate. Demas, who was once a ministry partner with Paul, as close in with him as Luke, has now given up the faith and not just walked away from Paul, but walked away from Christ. Of course, we can only speculate what has precipitated this significant and dramatic deconversion, but given the context here in this passage and here in this whole letter, I don't think it's out of the question to suggest that 
Here was Demas in Rome with Paul as Nero's persecution rose against the church. And Demas in Rome with Luke and Paul sees what Paul is enduring as he is facing this certain death. And as Demas looks at it, he deems the cost of discipleship too high and decides that he would rather have peace in this world, and so he cuts and runs to Thessalonica to start a new life, swimming in the Roman culture. It is sad. It is a sad verse, and it should sit heavily on your heart. It it should be a warning to you. We have said before, there is a warning in 2 Timothy. It's connected to that warning of the parable of the seeds, that there is a real danger that we might be self-deceived, that we might even go on and do great things for Christ, never actually having known Christ at all. And so think of Demas and examine your hearts before the Lord. But Demas' departure clearly, clearly hurts Paul. In fact, it hurts so deeply Paul says it's one of the reasons why he wants Timothy to come to him. Right? There's almost a sense that, that Paul needs his beloved child in the faith to come and comfort him as he reels from this desertion. Look at what he says uh, here. In verse 9, do your best to come to me soon for, because the reason why I want you to come to me soon, Timothy, is because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Paul struck, wounded deeply by Demas' desertion. But it's not just Demas that has gone. Crescent, Paul writes, has gone to Galatia. Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Now, you understand, there's no hint here that they like Demas have apostatized, but rather it seems that they have just departed from Paul to go on to new areas of ministry. But regardless, Paul now was devoid of their company. Tychicus too has left Paul, having been sent by Paul to Ephesus, undoubtedly in tandem with this letter, and probably to relieve Timothy so that he would be able to observe Paul's invitation and come to him soon. The upshot is that Paul is alone. Only Luke is by his side. Paul the apostle now facing death, this cruel execution at the hands of Nero, and, and he is, he's virtually alone. It is a lonely picture. And it's one that's further exasperated when we get to verse 16 and we realize that one of the reasons why Paul is so alone is because the church in Rome has turned its back on him. Now, the church in Rome that Paul wrote to ten years earlier in that systematic theology that we find in his letter, that, that letter in which Paul conveys his joyful anticipation of the day when he will be able to come and meet with this church that he has only ever heard of, and that he will be able to teach them and build them up in their faith and rejoice with them at their shared salvation in Jesus Christ, even hoping that they would be the base of his mission, sending him on as he goes to Spain. 
Ten years earlier, Paul and this church have this warm and vital relationship, and now where are they? They're nowhere to be found. They, he says, they have deserted him. Of course, there's a sense in which that's understandable. Even Paul graciously prays at the end of verse 16, may it not be charged against them. These are dangerous days in Rome. These are days of suspicion and intrigue. These are days when Christians are being ratted out as the scapegoat for Nero's vain indiscretions. We understand that for the church in Rome to have publicly stood with the apostle, speaking up for him during that preliminary investigation that he mentions here, would have meant that they too would have been imprisoned with Paul. They too would have been sent, cast to the lines. They too might have been hung as Roman candles in Nero's garden, burned alive as the emperor walked in the night. But regardless, they're not there. Whether or not it is apostasy, like Demas, whether or not it is ministry that has sent men away from him, whether it is if we're charitable, prudent reserve on the place of the Roman church, the picture that we end up with is Paul alone with Luke facing a cold and uncertain winter. This this is the end of the apostle's life. The tradition is that Paul will not escape this imprisonment. The tradition is that, that Paul was released from his imprisonment at the end of Acts. That perhaps the the time for his trial expired, and he was let go, and he went on to a fourth unrecorded missionary journey. And at the end of that journey, he's arrested in Troas, which is why, verse 13, he left his cloak and his parchments there, arrested in Troas, undoubtedly due in large part to Alexander the coppersmith's betrayal of him to the Roman authorities now imprisoned again in Rome. He will not escape this time, but rather he will be beheaded for his allegiance to Christ. This is the end of his life, and the great apostle sits virtually alone. And what of his legacy? Remember, on top of this, there is that heartbreaking statement in chapter 1, verse verse 15, where Paul says, very matter-of-factly, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. Now, you just look at the maps in your study Bibles of Paul's missionary journeys. Not all of his ministry was in Asia, but a good half of it was in Asia, maybe more than half of it was in Asia. And Paul, sitting in Rome, he says, you know what, Timothy? I I virtually have nothing to show for it anymore. 
They've turned away from me. They have recanted the gospel that I preached. They have turned away from me, and the implication is if they have turned away from the apostle, they've turned away from Christ as well. And now there's virtually nothing to show for all of his labors, for half of his ministry. But I think if he was one of our contemporaries, we might be tempted to write him off as well-intentioned Paul, a man who had, who had flashes of brilliance, but ultimately a cautionary tale. And if success is measured in numbers, then Paul sits here at the end of his life as a failure, someone whose ministry we can conduct a post-mortem on so that we can understand where he went wrong so that we can make sure that we don't make the same mistakes. It would be a great podcast. But of course, as sad as Paul is here, there's no despondency here. There's no regret here. Paul does not sit here feeling sorry for himself, reckoning himself to be a failure. Here, we are given this insight into Paul at the very end of his life, and we are given the privilege of hearing what is essentially his last words in these verses. And as Paul reflects on his life and ministry, the overriding thought is that he sits there sad and alone, but ultimately happy with his work because his labor has been done not with his eyes on pleasing those who are around him, but with his eyes firmly fixed on his Lord Jesus and with his determination to serve him well in all things. And look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight, he says. I have finished the race, he says. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Now, depending on your temperament, some of that might sound like hubris on the apostle's part. But of course, he's not saying that he's executed his ministry flawlessly. He's saying that he has executed his ministry faithfully. He says that he can say hand on heart that, that throughout his ministry, his eyes have been set on Christ and his foremost desire has been to serve Christ in the places where Christ has placed him. And to the best of his ability, he has trusted Christ for the outcome. Right, this little section here, these two verses, they are full of a focus on Christ. They hearken back, don't they, to, to, to the image that Paul, the images, the three images that Paul used in chapter 2. Right? You remember that vivid exhortation, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4? He urged Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, aiming to please the one who enlisted him. He urged Timothy to discipline himself like an athlete preparing for the game. He urged Timothy to work hard like a farmer tending to the part of God's field where he has been placed. Now Paul says, at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. 
I have been a, a faithful soldier, he says. I have labored, I have fought to please the one who enlisted me. I have fought the good fight. He says, I have finished the race. I have, I have kept the rules of the game, and I have finished the race. He says, I have kept the faith. This is not a self-congratulatory image, but rather it is one in which he is saying, my, my conscience is clear. I have not failed. I have done the work that Jesus has given to me. And so now, as my battle draws to a close, I can sit down knowing that I have honored my King in the fighting that I have done to advance and defend His kingdom. He says, as my, as my race is now over, I can sit at that, at that finish line knowing to, to extend the thought a little bit, to, know, to knowing that I've pleased my coach, right? I've kept the discipline, I've, I've run according to the rules, and, and now I sit at the end of my race happy with the race that I've run. He says, at the end of my life, and this is maybe putting words in his mouth, but I, I don't think it's too far. Like a faithful farmer, he says. I think that's what he's saying when he says he kept the faith. I've, I've been like that faithful farmer. I've, I've planted the seed. I've watered the field. And I've done it in faith, just trusting Christ for the harvest. And so as he looks forward to that day, apparently that imminent day when Christ will call him home, there's no fear in him that he will receive a rebuke from his Lord. But rather he is confident that he will just get that crown of righteousness. Now don't get tripped up on what is the crown. It is simply a, a way of saying that, that he will come into the presence of the Lord and and he will be granted the fullness of righteousness brought into this rest and the satisfaction of the presence of his Lord. It is uh, an award, he says, not, that is given, not one that's given to the exceptional, but simply to those who have loved the Lord's appearing. That's just another way of saying those who love Jesus. It's the reward that will be given to all those who love him, who, who long to see their king's return, who long to see his kingdom established on, on earth. And so Paul's last word here is to say that despite the real and present heartbreak, there is no regret in him. There is no wishing that he had done it differently. There is no sense of failure here. Paul understood himself. Chapter 2, verse 24, as the Lord's servant. Christ was his point of reference. Christ was the master that he was serving. And so as he considered it all, it was Christ's approval that master, mattered most to him. Regardless of how things may look, Paul knows he's done his duty. He has served his Lord, and so now he could face his death in peace. And you understand, this is really important for us to grasp. It is important for us when we think about what success means in the church. Now, of course, we want to see numerical growth both in our congregation and both in the church throughout America and even around the world. 
Of course we want to see numerical growth. We, we long to see the lives of men and women transformed by coming to know God through Christ in the gospel. Right? We love to hear the testimonies of those who say, I was once walking in darkness, but the Lord called me into light and life in His kingdom, and my, 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 my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose and I went forth and I followed Him. These are the greatest of all stories, and we want to hear more and more of them. We want to see revival, don't we? We've heard stories of, of revivals where churches have been so full that people have, have stood at the windows to hear the preaching of Christ's gospel, where they have sat on the pulpit steps and in the aisles in defiance of all imaginable fire codes because they just longed to hear more of Christ. How we would rejoice to see that in our day. Of course we want to see numerical growth. But that is not the ultimate goal. It's not even the driving consideration. First and foremost, we want simply to be faithful to Christ and trust Him for the growth. It's why we in this church are committed to what's called an ordinary means of grace ministry. A ministry that is focused on the ordinary means through which God builds up His people in the knowledge of Christ, the reading and the preaching of the Word, the administration of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, where we are committed to corporate prayers. These are not flashy, they're not impressive, but we believe that Scripture tells us that these are the normal means by which God not only saves people, but then builds them up in their faith. They're not outwardly or worldly impressive but they are the means that God has given to the church. And so, we are committed to faithfully serving Christ in the ordinary means of grace. That's why we're committed to doing, our, our, to doing that according to what's called the regulative principle for worship. Now, there are two philosophies that direct how people approach God in worship. There is the normative principle, which says you can do in worship anything except that which is forbidden by Scripture. And there's the regulative principle that says you can only do in worship that which has express command. And historically, the Reformed Church has stood firmly on the regulative principle for worship, understanding that when we approach God in worship, we are standing on holy ground. Therefore, we must only ever approach Him as He has told us to approach Him. We cannot presume that we know how God wants to be worshipped, so we must listen to Him as He tells us in His Word. It's just the second commandment. That we do not worship God according to our imagination or the practices of other religions, but rather we approach God as He has told us to approach Him, to worship Him as He has told us to worship Him. Again, it is not outwardly impressive, but it is faithful to the Word of our God. And so committed to these things, we simply seek to serve Christ in our worship, not adjusting to pragmatism, not adjusting to appeals to the masses, but simply doing what God has told us and trusting Him for that harvest. But this is also important for us personally, especially when we think about our families. 
And we can carry a lot of guilt when it comes to loved ones who do not know Christ, especially parents of covenant children who have opted out of the covenant community, have chosen to abandon their baptisms, and who, like Demas, have deserted the church because they have fallen in love with this present world. We can be racked with guilt. Is there, is there something I should have done that I didn't? Was there some better way that I should have presented the gospel to them? Should I have been more faithful in leading family worship? Should I have lived a better life in front of these children? The, the questions should just go on and, and on and on. It's the question we ask whenever anyone does not respond favorably to the gospel. Was there something I should have done better? Was there something I should have said better? But here is the word from the apostle at the end of his life, having seen so many walk away from him and the gospel that he preached. And this passage is a, is a balm to your troubled heart this morning. Yes, it may very well be that you could have said something better. You will not execute your ministry flawlessly. It may well have been that you could have reflected more accurately in your life what it means for you to follow Christ. You do not obey Christ flawlessly. But here Paul reminds us that we are simply to do our work, to do what he has called us to do faithfully, and then trust him for the rest. Paul reminds us here that in all of life and ministry, we are always to remember the economy of the kingdom, that it is Christ who is king, not us. And that it is Christ who is able to change hearts, who is able to subdue people unto himself, as the catechism puts it, not us. And so as his servants, we serve faithfully in the part of his vineyard that he has placed us. We do our work, and then we just trust Him for the rest. Now, that doesn't remove from us the pain of seeing people we know and love not respond to the gospel as we long to see them respond to it. There is clearly pain here in what Paul writes in this letter, especially in these closing words. We don't become stoic or uncaring. We don't become laissez-faire about it and say, well, I've done my part, and that's it. But we do get relief from the guilt that wonders some people are being cursed for our failings. No, Paul says, we do our work, we fight our fight, we run our race, we sow and water, and then we just move forward to that day when we will be reunited to Christ our King and welcomed into His rest. This is a distinctly gospel way of understanding life. This is a distinctly gospel-centered, gospel-driven way of understanding life. And you can only do this if Christ is your all in all, if Christ is your greatest treasure. If the greatest truth in all the world to you is that Christ has, has washed away all of your sins and made your hearts new and reconciled you to God and lavished upon you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I don't understand. You won't get this if you're still pinning your, your sense of self-worth on the outcomes of your works in life or in ministry. You won't get this if you're still trying to prove to the world, if you're still trying to prove to yourself, maybe even still trying to prove to God that you are someone significant and important. 
This way of thinking, this way of living, it grows out of a heart that has died to self and simply seeks to live to Christ. This way of living, it flows out of that heart that says with John the Baptist, Christ must increase and I must decrease. As we leave this book, we leave it We leave it with a sad word, but we leave it with a word ultimately of great comfort. As Paul has been saying throughout this letter, it will be hard here in these last days as we await our Savior's return. But we have the comfort of knowing that we are wrapped up in Christ, and Christ the Good Shepherd knows what He's doing. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for wisdom from your Holy Spirit that we would correctly get the balance here. We don't want to be men and women racked with guilt because we might have done something wrong, but yet we don't want to become stoic and uncaring. And so we pray that you would give us tender hearts that at the same time deeply and profoundly long to see your churches full, long to see people come to a knowledge of Christ, but hearts that also remember that we are the servants, not the master, that we are the subjects and not the king. Oh, Lord, give us grace. Give us grace to see ourselves wholly and entirely as as people who, for whom Christ is our greatest treasure. And so our whole identity is wrapped up in Him. Our whole ambition is wrapped up in Him. And all of our security is wrapped up in Him. Oh, Lord, may we be men and women who are, who are marked by, by Christ. That we would have, as it were, the cross painted on our eyeballs that we would not see anything except through the medium of our Savior's passion. Help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.